Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. My name is Sergio, or Sergio, uh, from Chile, a volunteer priest here at Church of the Redeemer and working closely with Bishop Alan in our diocese. And today is the last Sunday before Advent begins. Today we celebrate Christ the King Sunday. I want you to uh, keep your Bible open or your phones. We're going to walk together through the text this morning. Um, And I believe uh, this uh, special feast helps us to remember that Christmas is much more than a baby in a manger. It is about Jesus, the King, who one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. However, the kingship of Christ is a very popular doctrine with uh, patristic origins. Books have been written about it. Songs have been sung about it. Artwork has been made about it. But do we really understand what it means that Jesus will return as the king? And most importantly for today's sermon, are you ready to present yourself before the king? Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that your word is a lamp to our feet, and we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you open and soften our hearts to receive your message. And please remove any distractions preventing us from fully engaging with you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, I have decided to teach about the most controversial and difficult passage of our readings. And I did it on purpose because many don't want to talk about something that feels hard in the ears of our modern and progressive culture. Because we live in a culture that says there is no universal truth. And if heaven exists, everybody will be there, right? But why do they think that? Because truth has been privatized to what you feel rather than what the Bible says. For example, the Holy Scriptures explicitly affirms that the only proper context for sexual intimacy is the relationship of a man and a woman in the context of marriage. However, and very sadly, about two weeks ago, the Church of England decided to start blessing homosexual marriages. Yes, the Bible is clear on this, but their feelings and cultural pressure is stronger than the authority of the Scriptures. Because in a culture of false inclusivity and dangerous tolerance, the words of Jesus are unacceptable for many people. And that's why universalism is so popular and tempting, even for many of you this morning. Like the famous analogy of the blind man who discovered an elephant. I think I have a slide about that. Since the men have never encountered an elephant, they grope about, seeking to understand and describe this new thing. 
One grabs the trunk and concludes it is a snake. Another grabs the leg and concludes it is a tree. And the third grabs the tail and concludes it is a rope. And the fourth blind man, after touching the elephant's side, concludes that it is a wall. So each, in his blindness, is describing the same thing, an elephant. However, each describes the same thing in radically different ways. So according to religious pluralists, this is equivalent to the world's different religions. All of them describe the same thing in different ways. So we should conclude that no individual religion has the truth, but all should be considered equally valid. But what they don't realize and accept is that the elephant has spoken. <laughs> the elephant has spoken. The elephant has revealed himself through the scriptures. And what it says, it says, I am the truth, the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is saying here is that not all religions are the same. Not every, everyone has their own truth. And not everyone is going to heaven. And if you are a Christian this morning, you must believe and accept Jesus' words if you are a follower of Christ. So today we must deal honestly with our passage and acknowledge this is God's word, God's authority. But before diving into the text, we must understand and examine the context of Jesus' words about the last judgment. Matthew 24 and 25, it's a prophetic sermon of Jesus that deals with the end of times. So Jesus, before his words on the last judgments, warns us to be vigilant and be prepared with three parables. The first one is the parable of the evil slave. Here, the lesson is not to think that we can sin as much as we want because the end is far away. On the contrary, the Lord can come anytime. The second is the parable of the ten virgins. Here, Jesus warns against the foolishness of being unprepared, being negligent to receive the bridegroom. And third, the parable of the talents. Here, the warning is for those who fail to serve the Lord with obedience and seal before he comes. In other words, the Christian must be aware and prepared for the second coming of King Jesus. And today's passage in Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is the climax of Jesus' sermon about the end of times. And he paints a picture of what will happen when the Son of Man, the King, comes again. So to understand this, I want to divide this sermon into three main ideas. The first one, because Jesus is King, he will come to judge all people in this world, verses 31 to 33. And I want to highlight three aspects of this. First, the royal coming of Jesus in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Jesus will come with an entourage of angels. This is very interesting because you'll remember Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. He entered on an animal of peace, not an animal of war or power. And what did people say? Hosanna to the king of the Jews. However, people were still wondering who Jesus was. They were very unsure about him. But the language here used by Jesus himself is radically different. Jesus speaks of himself as the son of man coming in his glory. This is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. So now everyone, everyone will know that Jesus comes as a king in glory and there will be no confusion about him. Second, it is crucial to understand what it means that Jesus will come as a king. Because this is not just a humble throne. Sometimes we, we don't know how to deal with this uh, because in our culture, uh, monarchies are, mar are more like part of the aristocracy, fancy events, and they don't have any power in their countries. But this is not the situation. Sitting on the throne means, means that he is in the position of the one who alone has the right to rule and to judge. Biblically and historically, the king rules and leads by applying the law and making judgment. Not to go to the Mediterranean Sea to parties. They used to do it by applying the law and judging his people. So this is precisely what Jesus will come to do, is what he says in these verses. And thirdly, we must realize that he will judge by distinguishing people among the nations. Verses 31 to 33. Before him will gather all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When you look at the Old Testament... You have the nations dispersed. This happened because of Babel. Then in the Old Testament prophecies, all the nations are going to Zion. And here, Jesus has all the nations together before him. But don't get confused because when we think of nations, we immediately think of countries. So we imagine countries before Jesus' throne, like Rwanda, Sudan, the U.S., Chile on the front, of course. <laughs> but, but when the Bible speaks about nations, use the words ethnos, which means ethnicities. Therefore, in the last judgment, there will be individuals from every tribe, tongue, and ethnicity. And King Jesus will separate individuals, not political countries. As the shepherd separate the sheep from the goat, this metaphor is also challenging to understand in our modern or urban context, but this image of the judge as a shepherd comes from the Old Testament, our first reading in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 17. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. So those Jews... Listening to Jesus immediately 
returning their minds to Ezekiel 34. They knew that Jesus claimed to be the God of Israel who came to judge. So when the Son of Man comes as the king, he will displace justice in the same kind of separation. However, he will know his flock beforehand. Remember that Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep know my voice and they obey me. And according to verse 33, the sheep will be directed to the right and the goat to the left. The Bible always distinguishes between the right and the left. Same as the U.S., you know, but for very different reasons. We are not talking about political issues. This is not about Democrats, Republicans. In the Bible, consistently, the right is the place of most incredible privilege before the Lord. So the sheep will be on the right and the goat will be on the left. And I ask you this morning, will be you among the sheep or the goats? Will be you at the right or the left of the throne? But most importantly, how do you know this? That's the question. How do you know this? Here comes my second point. Because Jesus is righteous and faithful, he will judge and receive his people. Verses 34 to 40. What if you're before Jesus on judgment day and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What will you say? I try to be a good person. Or I try to live a good life. I've done more good things than bad things. I went to church two, three weeks every month, even in Thanksgiving week. <laughs> or I was a leader, a lay leader, a deacon, a priest, a bishop. Well, I hope you will say my only hope in life and death is in the precious blood of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived and died for me. I hope you will say I'm trusting in Jesus Christ by faith alone and by grace alone for salvation. But what if Jesus tells you, well, what evidence of this grace is in you? What will you say then? Well, th that's precisely what Jesus is talking about in this section of the passage. This is very important for you to understand because many think that this passage teaches about salvation by works, mainly because of verses 35 to 36. You can look at it in your Bibles or phones. But I will show you that this interpretation is incorrect. First, look at verse 34. Those sheep on his right are the blessed people by the Father. The blessed people by the Father. Those given a kingdom prepared for them before time or before the foundation of the world. So the reason for receiving the kingdom could not be based on their works since it was prepared for them before they did anything about it. 
This reminds me Ephesians 1.11, which says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's purpose from the beginning, before the world was brought into being, was to redeem his chosen people through grace and faith in him. But now let's take a look to the verses uh, 35 to uh, 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus speaks about them, about having cared for the hungry, the thirsty, the strangers, the naked, those who were sick. These are the verses that create this confusion. But is it by doing these things that we get into heaven? I ask because many non-Christians do these and some better things and even more generously than us. I saw a video of Mr. King uh, doing, uh, giving uh, a lot of water in, in Africa uh, probably a month ago, it was amazing what he did. So, uh, how do we put this together? Let me suggest that the sheep are not at the right hand because they have done these things. They've done these things because they are sheep. Let me read you Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do it. Yes, it is all about grace. I'll say more about this in a moment. But another mistake that people do with verses 35 and 36 is to use them to call Christians to show kindness to the poor. Let me say two things about that. First, the whole Bible calls us to be concerned and help and love those in need. The whole Bible, from Genesis to Revelations. First, in our families, then in our Christian community, and then to all men and women. We have concentric, growing circles of responsibility. But second, this is not what Jesus <laughs> is discussing in this text. And the clue is the phrase that he uses in verse 40. Verse 40. I say to you, to the extent that you did it, to the least of these brothers of mine. Jesus here is talking about his disciples, his followers. So what is going on here? Let me take you all the way back to Genesis chapters 4, sorry, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. When God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised people, place, and blessing, which is a relationship. So the promise is the Garden of Eden or the Kingdom of God restored, right? The people of God in the land of God under the blessing of God. 
But we never talk or teach about the last part of the promise in verse 3. When God says, Abraham, those who bless you, what? I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. That's what Jesus is precisely saying here in verse 40. Why? Because you cannot bless or curse the body of Christ without doing it to Christ himself. Just think about this. When Paul was persecuting Christians and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In the end, Jesus says that whether you bless or curse his body, his family, his people, his church, you do it to himself. So Jesus says Christian love towards needy Christians is evidence of true love for Christ. This is what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So these loving actions are the evidence of who these people really are. But Jesus never taught that social justice is how you will be saved. Because if it does, we will all be lost. Because we can never care enough. And verses 37 and 39, look in your Bibles or phones, help us to understand this better. This is fascinating because the believers are clearly not waiting to be justified by what they were doing. What is their response when Jesus announced that they've done these things? When did we do this? When did we do this? They will have had least if they thought salvation was by works, right? Yes. May 2019, I did this and I did that. So I'm done. I'm ready. But the response is, when did I do this, Lord? That doesn't sound like somebody is waiting to be justified, to be saved by their good works, right? Because here, those, those saves are amazed that the Lord saw their love for the Christian brethren. They were not achieving something when they were doing that. They were naturally doing what the sheep does. So, brothers and sisters, we must realize and accept that before Jesus called us, we were all goats. And our destiny was on the left side of the throne of God. However, we became sheep because we were born again from heaven by grace and not by ourselves. Because we know, as Jonathan Edwards says, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Amen? Third and final point. Because Jesus is righteous and faithful, he will also condemn evil. Verses 41 and 46. 
In this last section, Jesus, not me, articulates the most uncomfortable and unpopular doctrine of eternal punishment. And in this section, I want to highlight three things. Verse 41, those goats on the left, whether false believers or unbelievers, will command it to depart from God's, the King, Jesus' presence. Second, hell is real. They will be sent to the same place of punishment created by God for his fallen angels. And thirdly, as we see in verses 42 to 45, their words will be evidence of the rejection of Christ. And if you look, this is the same form of dialogue with the sheep. But Jesus showed that they didn't, what they didn't do here. This is fascinating because they ask the opposite. They ask the opposite. They said, when didn't we do this? Yes, they have their list ready. Remember the context. While Jesus speaks these words, Pharisees and religious leaders are listening. They thought they were in because of their words or religiosity. And look how they also call him Lord. Let me read you Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Many will say to me on that day, said Jesus, that day is this day that we are talking about today. Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them, I will never know you. Away from me, your evildoers. In other words, the true believer is both a saint and a sinner, but always has a life that bears out faith. This is the perseverance of the saints. The Lord is faithful to complete the work he has started in us. But the unbeliever always has a life that bursts out unbelief. Publicly, or most of the time, privately. So in the last judgment, there will be no more opportunity for fake Christianity. That life of unbelief will be revealed. And the consequence is clear, as we see in verse 46, when Jesus says that these people are going to be in this place and the sheep are going to be with me in heaven. See that Jesus is reinforcing what he has said in verse 41. So let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. Is this unfair and unloving? Is this unfair and unloving? I know that you have been thinking about this. Me too. Well, let me tell you that from a biblical perspective, God's love is not inconsistent with his judgment. Giving the seriousness of sin and rebellion towards our holy God, we should all go to this same place. Remember the flood. 
Remember that the Lord saved only one family. Not because Noah was perfect. Actually, after the flood, we can see clearly that he wasn't. Just because of his mercy and grace. So let us be clear. According to the scriptures, not what we feel. The scriptures, the external authority that we have to follow the Lord. Nobody deserves heaven. Just look at your life. We don't need to go out to try to find this. Look at your life. Look at your actions, your words, your sinful thoughts, your most secret sinful desires. We all fall short before our holy God. However, in the cross of Christ is where we see God's retributive wrath and mercy meet in such a way that God's justice is satisfied. And this is the heart of the gospel. This is what we believe, and this is what we teach and share with many people who don't know Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we not only need to understand that the last judgment and hell are not against God's love and mercy, because it is also something we need to rest on. Let me ask you, why as Christians don't we take justice in our own hands? Why? We live in a world that is not just. Why don't we take justice in our own hands? Romans 12, 9 help us to remember that the Lord says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written in Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is so much evil in this fallen world. I don't know how much have you suffered because of the sinful actions of other people to you. Our refugee brothers and sisters have seen and experienced so much evil. They can tell us. Let me give you just a few numbers on the issue of sexual abuse. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. More than one in three women have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact at some point in their lives. But listen to this. This is critical, crucial for what we are talking about. Out of 1,000 sexual assaults, 975 per perpetrators will walk free. That's the reality of our justice. Is that fair? Will our holy king overlook all of this and many other things? No. We trust that our king will not overlook this and many other evil things on this side of eternity. We trust in God's justice toward all those who have not repented from their sin and evil actions. 
He will judge. He is the king. He is in charge. And we must rest in his perfect and holy judgment. Amen? But I want to close this sermon by asking you again and again and again, like for first time, last time, are you prepared? Are you prepared? Are you prepared to present yourself before the king? This is a serious question. We have been listening God's words, not Sergio's words, God's words. If you don't, if you don't, this is the moment to repent. This is the moment to believe. This is the moment to walk with Jesus. You know what? If Jesus has not come yet, it's because he is giving you time. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your life. Because this is the moment to turn to God. The Bible never talks about purgatory or any other instance where someone can help you to change your status before God if you die. So this is the time to do it. Not tomorrow. Lastly, how do we face the king last judgment as Christians? Well, because we do not trust in our righteousness, but in Christ's faithfulness and love, we must not fear. We must not fear. Let me read you 1 John 4, 16 to 11. That says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God lives who whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out what? Fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made in perfect love. I like how Calvin explained these words by saying, John says that the faithful do not fear when mention is made to them of the last judgment, but they go to God's tribunal confidently, cheerfully, because they feel assured of his paternal love. Remember, your king, your judge, is also your father who loves you deeply. He is the same one who calls you as a sheep and as his child. Therefore, you can trust that nothing and nobody will separate you from his love. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your perfect love in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that those who haven't met you yet can repent and believe this morning. And I thank you for forgiving us 
so we can have confidence before you on the day of judgment. Take away our fear and give us joy to walk with confidence with you until your second coming. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand to confess together what we believe before our King Jesus.